Carvel Ortega, author of Ghost Squad and Witchlings. And I'm Kat Cho, author of Wicked Fox and Vicious Spirits, and this is Write or Die. <laughs> and I forgot Yay. my name. Yes, like <laughs> sincerely, when I said, let's start recording, Clarabelle was like, okay, I forgot <laughs> how to do that. I was like, say your name. <laughs> I for- I was like, I forgot our intro. What is our intro? <laughs> I said, it's literally us just saying our names. <laughs> well, yeah, that's how you know the week that my brain has been through. I, It's just your, hard. Your brain has been through a week because... The last time we recorded an episode was two day- <laughs> days ago. <laughs> that is it's true. Been, oh, the last two days have been a week. Though. Yeah, they have been. <laughs> Correct. Um, we both had to push back deadlines mm-hmm. this week. Yes. Um, which which we're not going to go into because I do feel like we talk about deadlines every episode. Yeah. It's just a given now. Just assume Clarabelle and I are in deadline hell every time you, you hear uh, us. Yeah, every, like literally every time. Um, but in general, um, how, how else are you doing? I don't know even if it's worth asking that. <laughs> um, I've, I mean, I've been okay. Uh, it's been a, a wild couple days on, um, Twitter, which is so funny because I wasn't really on Twitter for a while because I, I was so busy with witchlings. And then the moment mm-hmm. I come back, it's like, it explodes. And I was like, am, it was it me? <laughs> Did I do yeah. something? Like, did I, did my presence trigger something? <laughs> it's, here, I'm going to be completely honest, and I know this is going to sound extreme, and, and I hope that, you know, people don't take it this way, but I'm very, I'm very close to becoming an updates-only account. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I never wanted to do that was because I'm like, people who do updates-only accounts, I always thought were people who were so, such busy authors and such, like, big-name authors that, like, if they personally did their account, they'd be flooded, you know, with fans trying to access them. Yeah. Um, but now I realize that it's that for some people. But it's also that, like, some people, it's bad for their mental health to be on Twitter as their author persona. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, the way people want to access us as authors and not just the big names anymore. Mm-hmm. Anyone mm-hmm. who is an author it can get to be a lot, especially if you're going through things in your life, especially like if you're merely an introvert, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have neurodivergence, it's a lot. If you have MIs, it's a lot. If you you know, have any past trauma when it comes to the way that people try to get into your life, it's a lot. And and I understand that now. I really, I really do. And I think that I'm at the point where like I might need to do that for myself, for my mental health, for my own safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not it's not safe. It's not for authors, especially authors of color right now. There are like it's very strange to me because there are people sort of like gleefully waiting, like saying that they're keeping tabs on people to wait for them to mess up. Um, yeah, people are literally saying it, that's not even an exaggeration, you guys. It's it, a literal like, like people are saying that. And it's really scary because it's like before it was like, OK, like I'll, I'll just be a good person. Like, <laughs> like yeah. if I'm a good person and I try my best and I try not to hurt anyone, I'll be fine. But now it's like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Like people will just find a way. And it's just it's just a lot of pressure. And I feel like um, it's hard because like we all want to 
make friends in the writing community and be friendly with one another. But just like in real life, it's impossible for everybody to be friends with everyone else, right? Like mm-hmm. you usually meet people like when you get started in the industry and you come up together and you become friends. Like I've amassed mm-hmm so many friends like throughout the process like to this day like I have to like be very careful like with how much of my time I give people because like I Mm -hmm. will make friends with a tree like I want to be friends (laughs) with everyone but it's impossible you can't do that you know yeah no I get it and also another thing that we were talking about before is that it's literally as a as as people of color um as a queer POC too like I have to be really careful about the people that I let in because not everyone's safe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Some people try to take advantage of you. Like everybody always talks about the authors that, oh, you forgot where you came from <laughs> and all that stuff. And like, yeah, of course that exists. That always happens. But you never talk about the other end of it. And I, I, I mm-hmm. suspect that's because the people who are talking about it are in the pool of a possible candidates of people who befriend others to get things from them um, mm-hmm. because of who they are or their status rather than them as a human being, which is mm-hmm. what a friendship is supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, well, and I think that first of all, Twitter are who we not, are, not just Twitter, but, Social media, who you see on social media, that's not me as a whole person. And we've said this before on this podcast, and I've said it before on social media. Like, there's so much more to me than you see. Mm. And some of it is just because, like, I, I'm a 3D person. But some of it is because, like, some of the stuff is my private business. Mm-hmm. And, I ha- and everyone has a right to have their private lives be private. Um, even someone who has stepped into the public space as an author or any type of public facing person. Like I like, you know, even people who have reality shows like I don't I don't think that Kylie Jenner owes me all of herself. OK, just because she chose to be on a reality show. Um, I don't think that she's still allowed to be a private person. So that was a weird example. But you everyone gets what I mean. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I'm not here to advocate for Kylie Jenner. <laughs> this is now um, Kylie Jenner or die. Just kidding. Like, <laughs> but the, what I'm saying is that like, I think that boundaries are supposed to be there for everyone's safety and everyone's health. Um, but yeah, so I, I get it that we all like feel like really close to each other, especially because the way this community has built itself up to be. But I do have very few friends I think it looks like I have a lot of friends and it's it is because I'm very friendly with people Mm -hmm. I think that I think that actually the way I see it because I'm also very friendly with people the way Clarabelle is very friendly with people Mm -hmm. but because I experienced a lot of bullying as a kid um, growing up as the only Asian person in my area um, and experiencing a lot of sorry gosh I'm getting emotional I I mean I mean, I experienced, and the thing, the problem is, is because I didn't even know what it was at the time, right? Like, five-year-old me, I didn't realize that kids pulling the sides of their eyes was not allowed, because that's all I knew. Yeah. And so, but I didn't know it made me feel bad. So I would pull back, and I I would be like, okay, I have to see these kids at school, but they're not my real friends. And I think as adults especially going into internet spaces. I mean, if you're a kid who grew up in the 90s or early aughts, you grew up being told, don't meet strangers on the internet. Yeah. 
So Oops. when people <laughs> we failed started, at that. yeah, you and I failed at that with each other. But it when people first started being really friendly with me on Twitter.com, I was like, uh, oh, okay. But my mom told me not to meet strangers <laughs> on the internet, like like a full grown adult me. Okay, so add that with my issues with bullying and and not being able to get too close to people as a kid and with the fact that I'm a woman of color and with the fact that even if I don't talk about it a lot Mm. I do have my queer identity and my neurodivergence like I'm not saying this to be like look at my list of things like feel bad for me I'm just saying that there's all these things that maybe you don't know about me but that is the reason why I'm I kind of pull into myself which can come across as me being like oh don't talk to me Mm. and if the way you choose to see it is like she thinks she's better than me because she already has these cool friends then that's i can't change i can't stop you from thinking that but but you shouldn't think that it's silly (laughs) yeah but i'm telling you the reason i'm telling you the story everyone is because i'm hoping that using my specific example proves to you that like there is more beneath the surface than you might see um we're dealing with a lot and we never every single author that I am close enough to to talk to about this issue none of them ever means to make people feel left out or sad or friendless or lonely if if we do that then then like tell us because I I never want you to feel like that for sure and I will immediately be like oh my god I'm so sorry no 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 I'm so happy you're here but yeah I I can't be best friends with everyone I'm really sorry and and a lot of it is because of my own needs for safety and, yeah. and my own past trauma absolutely yeah. and it's it's i mean it's kind of uh, it's too much to ask of people who are in a public sphere to be friends with everybody you know what i mean like mm-hmm. people are gonna have friend groups like that is just how life is that doesn't mean mm-hmm. that you're not welcome into those friend groups because the way that you become friends with people is over time and like mm-hmm. with gained trust and like shared interests and uh sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't but just because it's not uh it's it doesn't happen doesn't mean that people are purposely keeping you out um yes i just find it kind of i don't know like a little bit immature to see things through that lens at this point um if Mm -hmm. there are people who are acting that way then you're better off not trying to be in their circles anyway you know what i mean like you don't want to be you don't want to be friends with someone who who is exclusionary and sort of like thinks that they're better than everybody else like why would you even care about people like that like they should be dead to you like just don't don't think about them you know yeah don't give them your energy they don't deserve your energy you're better you're better than that yeah and i also i remember like being new and like watching like people like uh who are already friends sort of like post pictures and stuff and like my thinking was like oh that's so cool and like I wish I had writer friends that way you know but it was never like they're mean because I'm not friends with them they're not letting me in their friend group like that's kind of irrational like that's not how life works like you can't just will yourself into friend groups and like be Mm -hmm. mad at people because you're not part of your their friend group and when you have a friend group you're gonna feel the same way (laughs) you know what Mm -hmm. I mean it's not anything against you or anything personal it's just that's how social dynamics work and a lot of times those social dynamics 
can feel very deceiving on Twitter. And you mm-hmm. can think that these people are in this huge friend group when really they only ever talk on Twitter. Oh, my gosh. The amount of people <laughs> I only ever talk to on Twitter. I'm telling you all right now, like the only person you can assume that I've met in real life is Clarabelle. <laughs> That's the only person <laughs> because there's so many people who I enjoy their humor i enjoy their thought process their opinions i've literally never seen their face in real life i have no idea what they look like (laughs) there's just a lot of assumptions made on public spaces and i think that uh there's assumptions and then there's like conclusions to those assumptions and it's really dangerous because you're you're already starting from a place of not actually having all the knowledge and then you're making concrete Mm -hmm. decisions about people and their intentions and who they are based on incomplete information and Mm -hmm. i think that a people need to stop investing so much time and energy into other people online and like worry about like them themselves and like your own career and like making the most out of like your time and doing the best for yourself as a person and if you focus on those things you're not going to be worried about like this friend group isn't (laughs) nice and they're not letting me hang out with them or whatever it is sometimes I want to be like have you tried being friends with that person yeah like have you tried to talk to them or is have you tried more than tweeting at them right is or is this just like an assumption based on like like an anger or bitterness that you have towards them like really think about it and like be introspective about it like don't lash out and be mad about it like really ask yourself the question what is really making me so angry about the fact that there is a friend group that I am not a part of Mm -hmm. did I try to be friends with them and they told me no you can't sit with us were they mean to me specifically or am I assuming that that's how they're going to be and I feel left out and I'm projecting those feelings onto them it's Mm -hmm. that could happen so easily especially when you feel like everybody in the author community is friends with one another and you're left out but that's not the case there are so many people who are just floating on their own and you have to find those other people so that you guys can connect but you focusing on on others like in an angry way is not going to help you it's only gonna hurt you in the long run and that's not what we want for you and that's not what you should want for yourself it's an unhealthy use of your time to be completely honest and I get it like I get how social this community feels and I get that if you are someone who has not yet broken in quote unquote to the community or or found someone that you feel close with then it might be something that's on your mind a lot because I do think that we end up thinking about all the stuff we don't have way more than we think Mm -hmm. about the stuff we do have because yes I have good close friends that I've spent the um at this point eight years god it's taken me eight years you guys to make friends that I feel close enough to be like really really comfortable with so it wasn't and it wasn't overnight I swear it was not overnight so um I don't I I'm gonna be honest I don't worry about making new friends I don't I don't actively worry about it but I do worry about will I ever be able to sell another book you know because Mm -hmm. I don't have that guarantee or will I ever get this accolade or will I ever you know get a big advance you know things I don't have things I I and and I think about that way more right um so I think it's fair and human that you dwell a lot on the things that you want but do not have but I think that there's a difference between acknowledging that you really want something and letting that become your whole life and letting it consume Mm, you yeah and I 
I also do want to say too that I think that the best piece of advice that I've ever gotten, and I have also definitely said this before on the podcast, is that no one is thinking about you as much as you are thinking about yourself. And the reason why I think it's important to say it in this context is that if someone in a really, what you think is a really cool, very close-knit friend group, if they're posting a lot of photos of themselves, they're not doing it to make you jealous, okay? They're not doing it to rub it in your face. They're celebrating themselves. Yeah. They're yeah. thinking about themselves. Yeah. They're thinking about like, I had a great time and this is cool and I want to record this and, and you know, put it on Facebook or social or, you know, Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Um, and, and they have a right to do that, to be completely honest. They're not doing it to rub it in your face. I swear to God. I mean, and if someone is doing that and if you really, 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 really think that that is truly their goal with it, then stop thinking about them. Stop following them. Stop letting them you know influence how you feel yeah because they're not worth your time yeah okay don't give those people your energy yeah and then the other thing that I do really want to say is that even even for me if I'm close to one person that I know is part of an established friend group I don't assume that I should be allowed into that friend group and the reason why I'm saying this is because I would never ever assume that someone should be let into my friend group because everyone in my friend group is very different in the level of safety that they require. So for me to force a stranger upon my friends is not being a th- me being a thoughtful friend, okay? If there was somebody that I was like, oh, I'm friends with them, so and I told them, Clarabelle's your friend, Clarabelle's your friend, you can text her, you can, or whatever. Mm. That's not being a good friend, Okay. So I get it that you're like, well, but I talked to so-and-so a lot and they're part of this really cool friend group and like, but the friend group didn't like immediately let me in or something like that. Then it's because you're not yet friends with everyone in that group and it's okay. They, they can get to know you. You can like naturally get to know them too. And then eventually maybe you can be a part of the group. But I think it's really, really important to understand that there's a huge difference between becoming friends with one individual person because it's so much easier to connect one-on-one than it is to be let into a friend group, Yep, an established friend group. Yep, There's a huge difference. Absolutely. That's very true. And if you are having trouble making friends on like Twitter with other writers, I have this thread that's really good about like how to do it without being a weird because I feel like sometimes it's hard to because you feel like, oh, I'm being a weirdo um, right now or I don't want to mm-hmm. overstep. I don't want to be like awkward um Mm -hmm. so i have sort of like a method of how you can do that and we could just share it in the show notes in case you're having trouble and you want to make friends and you don't know how and you're feeling left out it's like a good place to start yes it's all true it's all true and everyone needs different methods but what we're saying is that let it happen naturally yeah and don't let the haters get you down We're so excited for today's guest. Uh, It's Victoria Aveyard, who is an author, a screenwriter, born and raised in a small town in Western Massachusetts. Both her parents are public school teachers, as well as avid film, television, and literature fans. Victoria grew up on a steady diet of Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and Lost. She pursued a degree in writing for film and television at the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. After graduating college in 2012, Victoria moved home from Los Angeles 
Angeles and began writing the manuscript that would become Red Queen. She has since published four number one New York Times bestselling and USA Today bestselling books, two New York Times bestselling novellas, a New York Times bestselling short story collection, and she lives <laughs> full-time in Los Angeles and is hard at work on her next young adult fantasy series. The first installment is Realm Breaker, which comes out tomorrow. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, we're, we're so excited. So yeah, excited. It's definitely the first time we did this intro. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect always. I mean, never. Technology. Yeah. It's great. And... Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, so uh, we do have a couple questions for you. Wanted to start cool. off with one uh, we're both really curious about, which is um, how did it feel uh, writing Realm Breaker after spending so long in the Red Queen world? Uh, yeah, it was, it was, I was very happy to move on to a new sandbox, partially because I was really, really tired and had a little bit of series fatigue. Um, but I also, you know, discovered myself so much as a writer during the course of Red Queen and my writing had changed so much from the beginning to the end that it felt like, okay, I can, I know a little bit more about myself and I know a little bit more of the pitfalls of publishing and crafting a series. So hopefully I can avoid those this time around and push my craft a little bit further. Um, it was very nerve wracking though. To, and anytime you're moving somewhere new, um, especially from a series that got as much love as Red Queen. You obviously hope that that will continue and carry on with the new one, but you're never sure. And of course you want your readers to enjoy what you do next as much as they enjoy what you did before. So excitement and, and nerves. Those are the two <laughs> veiling emotions. Oh, those are so relatable. And it's just the fear that's like, well, okay, you, you got to know me because of this one thing, but will you stay around? Right. <laughs> kind of a... One thing I tell everyone is like that fear, at least for me, it, it never goes away. And I don't think for most authors it goes away. So welcome to writing books for a living. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. We actually talked to the lovely and beloved um, Becky Abertali recently and, um, she actually said, and she writes a lot of standalone, but she also says she has the same fear sometimes um, going back because she's going back and forth between um, co-writing and now it's her first standalone in a few years. And we were like, okay, so everyone feels this, this is good. Like Clarabelle <laughs> and I are still technically baby authors. So when we hear people like Becky or like you, Victoria, say this, we're like, okay, it's normal. <laughs> we're not weird. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because it's like, okay, it's normal, but it's, it's also like, oh, there's no escape. Yeah, it you never ends. <laughs> it's the same with the whole changing goalposts, you know. Yeah. That's just the nature of the business. You always want more and more and more, and you can be satisfied with a goal, but you won't be satisfied for long. Yeah. And, and the, the business itself will push you towards the next one, and it will become sort of this war of escalation between yourself and, and the business. I don't know if it's like me trying to just be an eternal optimist, but I hope it can like be like, oh, well, that just means we're always growing. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the nice part of the double edged sword is you're always pushing yourselves. And I feel like for the most part, we never are stagnant. And while some people would see that as, oh, you're never content. It's like, well, no, we're just never still. We're always yeah. pushing ourselves for more and hopefully achieving more with our craft with each prevailing book. Yeah, this actually is a good um, transition to an actual listener question. So we asked our wordies, that's what we call our listeners, 
Um, we asked our wordies um, if they had questions for you, and a few of them did. So this this is an anonymous question, but they said, what kind of creative liberties do you like to take with your work now that you're established? Like, what did you find you could and wanted to do with this new series that you didn't feel you could do with Red Queen? Um, I felt like I could take... I still really am dedicated to a fast-paced story that doesn't necessarily relate to length. Um, I still, I did feel like I could take a little bit more time and take a little bit more of a leap because I had a, a stronger foundation, but I also had a publisher um, and an editing team who were willing to give me a little bit more rope, and I could also find places where I could sort of stand my ground and say, no, I, I believe in this piece and this part, or... I believe that this cap cover is better than that cover. And I have a little bit more um, um, push there. Uh, and so that's not to say that like author, I have a better instinct. It's just that I have uh, more of a leg to stand on. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. um, there was one piece in particular in the book that I'm really happy that early readers seem to be connecting with is the prologue. And a lot of my edit team wanted either that prologue to go away or to be shrunk down even more than it is. And I kind of, that was the one piece I really fought for and said, it's not getting smaller than what it is. And I'm not taking anything more out of it. Um, and then to turn around and have people say like, Oh, I love the prologue or, Oh, what you did with the prologue really, you know, elevated the rest of the story for me. I think, okay. All right. <laughs> I made one good choice. <laughs> I'm sure you made more than one good choice. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel i feel like i'm i'm pretty sure that if you weren't making more than one good choice you would not have the loyal readership you have today so i'm gonna go out on a limb and say you make lots of good choices yeah oh, oh also i i wanted to just say really quickly my niece loves your book so much and i can't wait for her to hear this episode because okay. i'm gonna get so many points i mean i'm already the coolest aunt but this is gonna put me over the top for her so what's your niece's name clarabelle maya yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, is, when is she getting written into a book or how many times has she asked to be written into a she book? used to ask a lot now she's more chill about it um but she did she is sort of a little bit famous on book twitter because she suggested i name ghost squad fireflies of passion which is my favorite thing <laughs> Ever. I was brainstorming uh, names and she's very like she loves like Red Queen and like um, Ash Princess and all these like sort of like more dramatic YA fantasies. She was like Fireflies of Passion. And I was like, <laughs> I've got the perfect middle grade name. <laughs> exactly. That's so good. No, it's not a soap opera. It's the middle grade novel. Amazing. Um, she's oh. she's older now, but that was great when that happened. Yeah, you should get her like a needlepoint or an embroidery or something. <laughs> it's such a good or, idea. Uh, you should get the cover mocked up with instead of ghost spots, fireflies of passion. That is such that is such a good idea. I'm going to do that now. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and then you can put um, Victoria's fake blurb of this isn't a soap opera; it's a middle grade novel. <laughs> So, when did you first get the idea for Realm Breaker? Like, when did you first know that it was the next book that you were going to want to work on after you're done with the Red Queen series? So, I went back into my email and I found the earliest emails I sent with this book in mind. And when I first, you know, put it on a list of ideas to send to my agent, 
And it was actually in December of 2016. So wow. before the third Red Queen book came out, I had had, I knew I was starting to think about, you know, what I was going to do afterwards. And we were talking more from a scheduling standpoint of let's look at the next few years once these are done. Um, because in publishing, our schedules are built so far out, especially when you work in a series. Mm-hmm. So Susie and I, Susie was very, very lovely and kind of sat me down with a very big calendar. And from there, it was carving out, well, I know I want to do high fantasy next. And I've been thinking about this idea. And from then on, I, I went through the emails and I found, you know, here's where I sent her just like the log line. Here's where I sent the first chapter in the basic proposal for the world. But I didn't get to writing, writing. Um, until much later, until 2019. Um, but all of it because of Red Queen, because Red Queen was did very well and was very, very lucky, um, Harper locked me into a new contract for a new series sort of before I didn't have to really pitch anything to them. And I know that's a very um, rare circumstance, but it was a little bit different than what I was expecting. And once they're, you're locked in for a contract, they're like, okay, go go write that first draft. All right, you don't want to see anything? Now we're good. <laughs> what if you don't like it? <laughs> yeah, but like my my need for external validation. <laughs> like... Yeah, exactly, exactly. And luckily, um, my agent Susie gave me some good feedback and notes, and so I didn't feel like I was really at sea all by myself. Kind of, well, either they like it or they don't. I could be mm-hmm. writing a book they're not going to want. And already yeah. be on deadline for it. So that was that was a, a bullet dodged, I guess. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm really curious about this. Um, you're a fil- you're, you, you went to film school. Um, and so uh, we wanted to know how your film school background has played a role in uh, your book adaptations. Yeah. Um, on the craft side of things, the way that I structure story is entirely from my film school days. And it's the way I was taught to craft story in feature, to, in feature films. Um, and it's very common. And it's this, the structure that a lot of stories, both in film and on the page, follow. So it's three act, eight sequence. And I find that it works really well because it's a structure that audiences are already pretty familiar with, even if they don't understand it. But it allows them to sort of feel the beats and the rhythm of a story without even knowing it. And it makes it that much easier for them to um, be manipulated by me, for, for lack of a better word. <laughs> so structurally, yeah, that the bones of a, a screenplay and a book for me are exactly the same. And similar to that, pacing was also something I learned was very, very important on the screenwriting side. And it's something I excel at and very much brought over to YA. Um, And I think that is one of the hallmarks of young adult books to begin with, besides age range of a character or sort of a coming of age story. I think all YA books share a faster pace and they are much more immediate and visceral than other kinds of genres. So for me, those are the three things that like make a YA what it is. And it was one of the things we were taught in screenwriting, which is why I think there are a lot of people from film schools or from my program even who have transferred over to YA. Like Morgan Matson also went to USC screenwriting and Marie Lu went to USC cinema too. So there's a, and I think Ransom Riggs did as well. So there's a little like contingent of us who transferred over very, very well. And then on the, the business side of things, obviously it really helps when there's any kind of like adaptation talk or connection with uh, the entertainment industry because we know a little bit more about it and we understand how it works and sort of what things are true and what things are not true and where we should be involved and where we don't need to be involved but also 
we had classes that focused on pitching and we were taught how to pitch stories and how to be in a room and how to sort of sell something properly and how to sell ourselves as a writer, which is a part of the job I think a lot of authors don't think exists. And then suddenly you're thrown into it and you're in front of a, a room full of people at a Barnes and Noble and you, half of them <laughs> don't know who you are and they don't understand why you're sitting there and you have to tell them what your book's about. Oh, so that can be, it's very stressful in the moment still, but I try and pull back to my pitching class. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. And honestly, I didn't really think about it until just now that you do continue to have to pitch your books after Mm. you like query agents and stuff. I was always like, oh, just to get an agent. (laughs) It is really nice that like the agent is the one who does the serious pitching, like when it comes (laughs) to going on submission. And then from there, the editor is the one going to bat. And then the like bookseller liaisons and the marketing and pub side, they're pitching but you still have to do it too. There's a lot less of it, but you still have to be good at it. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And even if you're like on panels and stuff, like even if Mm -hmm. it's not like directly pitching, you're still sort of on and trying to talk about your books and all of those things are work and take skill and are not easy. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We've all been on, on panels where we're like, Oh no. I'm doing badly or you you're with someone here like okay they're not they're not really aware of what a panel is meant to do (laughs) yes (laughs) I also do like sometimes I can also tell if a co-panelist is just tired I'm like oh gosh they're so tired it's been a full weekend of events (laughs) like I'm so sorry um we we have a listener question that's also about um your film school background and so this person specifically said that they know that you conceived red queen as a film first and then wrote it as a oh sorry oh no i was just saying ah Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so they know you conceived Red Queen as a film first, and then you ended up writing it as a YA book. What was the story development process like for Red Queen versus Realm Breaker, which was conceived and written originally as a book? And was it different at all? <laughs> um, I'm not sure where they read that, because Red Queen was always a young adult novel in my head. I, I wrote it Like, I remember I wrote an email to myself with this basic image of a scene at my job at the film school and sent it to myself. But for me, it was always a book, uh, especially because we were kind of, I mean, my first class ever in film school, the teacher said, unless you're writing a comedy or a cheap horror movie, just write the book. Don't write the screenplay. You'll never sell it. (laughs) That's so interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, you're uh, an unknown kid for the most part, unless it's really, really good and you've got a lot of uh, luck or connections or money on your own. Uh, you're not going to be able to sell an 80, 90, 100 million dollar screenplay mm. um, uh, right out of the gate. That's very, very difficult and very rare. But Red Queen was always um, a YA novel to me. I just I don't even know how that would have started as a feature. It, and it came out of the fact that I was interning at the time on the Fox studio lot and my boss had me scouring the Amazon self-published list looking for the next 50 shades or the next wool which we had just seen blow up Mm -hmm. um, and basically was like find the next one and I started reading them and some of them were YA and some of them were like good but also accessible and up until that point novels still really intimidated me and I didn't think I was good enough to write one 
And that got my brain moving of, okay, well, I've written several features now and I've written several TV pilots and I understand the structure of story. And I've always loved novels and tried to write them in the past and utterly failed. Maybe now I can actually do it. And once I was open to the possibility, the Red Queen idea came and it was, okay, this is a young adult novel. And then when I pitched it to the one and only management company that ever gave me a general meeting, I said, I, this is a YA novel idea. I want to pursue it. And they were like, go for it. Oh, nice. So it, yeah. So I guess when, um, back to the original question, it comes down to what does the story demand? And it's the same thing with deciding whether it's a, a movie or a book as to whether it's a young adult book or an adult book. You know, the story very much tells you what it has to be. And I'm mm -hmm. sure it's the same with middle grade as well. You very much know what a story is when you're first kind of building it and you realize, okay, it slots into this box or it slots into this box. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's so interesting. Debunking rumors about yeah, Red no, Queen. That, that's our new that's our new ride or die function. Is where <laughs> we, we're going to debunk rumors everywhere. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of confusion about like, where my career started or how it started. And I remember that was pretty immediate back in the day. The, my favorite rumor for when I first sold Red Queen um, and then uh, the film rights were picked up was that I was a paid actress for some uh, other author. What? I've never heard that one. That's that was a good one. It was some like rando comment or tweet somewhere that I saw. And I was like, I'm going to tuck that one into my brain. Gosh. <laughs> People oh will just goodness. say anything. Well, that's, that's low-key a compliment. Thank you. I think it is too. I think they were like, she's just too pretty. To be a like, writer. She, yeah. She's just so pretty. She must be an actress. <laughs> I paid a lot of money for that headshot and it was worth every penny. <laughs> Oh my God. I love that rumor so much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I know that you really love maps um, and I wanted <laughs> no to segue. Talk <laughs> so I wanted to talk about um, what it is that you like about uh, map making. Um, what's your process <laughs> and any tips for authors who'd like to create their own fantasy maps? Yeah. So for me, the map thing started when I was very, very young and my brother had Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time on the N64, and it's a one-player game. And I was never allowed to play. He would always play instead of me. But my way of, quote, playing was to help him through the levels with the guidebook. And the guidebook had all these fantastic maps of Hyrule. And I started drawing maps of my own because I loved this one so much. And it was very much a natural jump from drawing the map to wondering, like, well, what's going on inside of it? Um, and that's where my first sort of, not first stories came from. I'd always kind of been making things up in my head, but that was the first very like, okay, this belongs to this and this leads to this kind of storytelling. Um, and so when I do craft stories now, they're always with an eye to the world as much as the character and the story. I, I That's what I love about storytelling telling, is building these big worlds that feel like they exist beyond the story and beyond the characters. In college, one of my professors, her one of her best pieces of advice is um, in good world building, you should be able to think that you can step back from a scene and open a door into the next room and there's something going on in there that doesn't have anything to do with the scene in front of you. And that's when you know the world feels real and is real to the audience. So that's what I'm always kind of striving to do. And that's something I think writers should try and keep in mind. Um, and make the world and the story kind of service each other. 
world building, the one thing that it really presents a danger to me is I couldn't do it too much in <laughs> Rum Break. I had to get to that point where I'm like, all right, you have built out enough of the history and the names and the trade routes. I think you need to start writing the story now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, because yeah, they... your world building process is like really involved i remember i don't know when this was time feels fake but i remember you had like a whole ig story series where you were talking about like world building and you showed all these books with like pictures of um castles and like how you how you like built different scenes in red queen it was so interesting and cool um so i could see how you would get lost in something like that too because it's like so much fun right it is it's fun and you but you also have to have that balance of okay I'm building something and knowing like the reader's never going to see this piece of pie (laughs) I need to internalize it so that I can build something past it and make this world feel like it's breathing and like everything builds on something else and when you give a little piece of information you want it to spark three other pieces of sort of assumption in an audience Um, so they're doing the world world building as much as you are you know you're giving them the boundaries and they can fill in the blanks at the edges Um, And then (laughs) as far as actual world building, my advice would be to look at a lot, if you're going to do maps yourself, um, or you need a map for your world, like look at maps before you do it. I I love opening a fantasy book and looking at a picture and saying like, okay, they don't know how rivers work. (laughs) Or, Or there's some magical reason why this river is is flowing in a way that it shouldn't why it splits and never comes back together or why this river doesn't start in the mountains tell me something about that um but otherwise you got to kind of learn the rules of geography if you want to create a map that feels real um and you can also make the map work for you in terms of storytelling as well the map for Realmbreaker has so many really cool easter eggs that the artist got in that i did not think she was going to manage to do and it's so so detailed and beautiful and I kind of went through it at a very high magnification when we were approving it. And just kind of like, oh my God, the architecture in this city is correct. This is amazing. Oh man, what a nerd. I love that. Yeah. But as much as I love world building, there are very much times in the story when you're actually writing where you have to be flexible and you have to let sort of the world that you built um kind of stretch especially if it's something the story needs or a character needs so it's important not to be rigid to the world building you've Mm -hmm. made when you're in the story and to allow it to kind of grow together and those are also really exciting pieces when you discover parts of the world building in the text versus beforehand oh I like that advice a lot that's perfect do you you think that you're a very visual writer like do you think that you like see things playing out in your head when you're writing them Oh, yeah. Shot for shot. (laughs) Uh, Some of the action sequences I choreograph in my brain to music, and that will actually really help me find a rhythm that feels natural. And then I will do as best I can to communicate that on the page so that the audience is seeing every single moment the way I'm seeing it in my brain. But I also want to do it in as spare of a way as possible. You know, you don't want to waste words because that's going to slow your audience down, especially if you're in, say, an action sequence. And sometimes I will have to draw out and choreograph something, and that's usually for larger battles or a chase sequence that gets very detailed. I had to draw uh, a castle uh, floor plan, essentially, 
for um, Realm Breaker because there is a an escape sequence from a capital mm-hmm. island. Yeah, I had nice. a lot of fun with that. <laughs> I have a question about fight scenes. Do you ever okay. like? Do you ever like get up and do any of the moves yourself? <laughs> Occasionally, I will um, read lines to myself, like whisper them and kind of act them out a little bit. So um, sometimes, if I am really not in the drafting mood, but I know a certain conversation has to happen, I'll write it almost in script format where I don't have any kind of he said, she said, they moved here, they did this. I will just write the dialogue and be like, all right, I accomplished something. And the next day when I come back and I start, you know, filling in the flesh of that, um, it helps me ramp into writing for longer. And I can kind of flex the muscle without really doing the hard work yet because I built a framework the day before. Cool. That's so cool. The choices made in Wicked Fox have had far-reaching effects, and Myung's friends are about to find out the dire consequences. The forces that govern life and death have been upended, and there are supernatural entities lurking in the background that will stop at nothing to right their world. New romance and dangers abound in Vicious Spirits, the companion novel to the crowd-pleasing Wicked Fox. This contemporary fantasy duology finds inspiration in Korean mythology, culture, and K-dramas. Wicked Fox has been called a vibrant debut novel that employs Korean genre conventions for an utterly original take on the young adult fantasy by Entertainment Weekly, and fresh and fast-paced by School Library Journal Review. Wicked Fox and Vicious Spirits are out now from Penguin Random House, wherever books are sold. That's so cool. So we've talked a lot about maps and all sorts <laughs> of stuff about Realm Breaker, but we haven't actually talked about what Realm Breaker is about. So yeah. <laughs> do you want to let our listeners uh, know what this new really exciting book is all about? Yeah, sure. Um, so like I said, Realm Breaker first came to me a, a long time ago when I knew I was going to be thinking about what series I was writing next. And I knew I was going to have a little more room and opportunity so I really started thinking you know what do I want to do what what do I in my heart want to do and then I started thinking well what was I looking for when I was 13 14 15 years old what were the books that I wanted um and at that point in time I was I mean I still am but I was such a Lord of the Rings geek and I loved that (laughs) much and I, I really would have given anything to go to Middle Earth and be part of the fellowship but that's a series that doesn't really love you back unless you're a straight white guy. There's not really much room for you in the fellowship. Um, And that's kind of an exclusion I feel like I've always carried with me. And I think it's something that a lot of us work through in a lot of different stories through like fan fiction. If you look at it truly, like that's the root of a lot of fan fiction is I didn't feel myself in this story and I wanted to be part of it. And so now I'm going to make that space for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was very much the spirit I carried into Realm Breaker was I want to make the classic fantasy adventure that I couldn't go on when I was a teenager and hopefully expanded a little bit for people who want to do that too and also felt excluded. So I came to Rome Breaker, which is a question of what happens when the heroes fail. You know, I thought about, well, what if the fellowship of all of those morally boring white bros went out, <laughs> got their asses kicked and died, you know? who's the JV team of saving the world. 
And that got my brain spinning. So I think of it as Lord of the Rings meets Guardians of the Galaxy. You have uh, a team now of ragtag and misfit criminals who do not see themselves as heroes, would never think that they could do things heroic, who now have to do it, uh, sort of allied behind a teenage girl who is the bastard daughter of the so-called hero who couldn't get it done. Amazing. I love that so much. And uh, I I have such appreciation for like just being like, well, I love this. So I'm just going to write a thing about it. My whole family loves Lord of the Rings. My cousin for her um, for her uh, honeymoon took the Lord of the Rings tour through <laughs> New Zealand. That was her honeymoon. That is <laughs> where so they went great. to every site. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> I so. have asked so many times to go on that tour. Um and my partner's like, no, maybe you'll find a husband on it. Oh, no. You can, like, like to keep you away from finding, from leaving your partner? Not like he's worried about me being taken away by someone. He's like, no, I'm not going to go. You can go find us. Oh, okay. I was like, maybe it's sweet, but no, no. no. All I'm going to do is go to Mount Sunday in Canterbury and stand on the rock that was Edoras and... <laughs> lean into the wind and i'm not allowed that's so rude i mean it would serve your partner right if you did go find your <laughs> lord of the rings husband it's, it's a 12-day tour that's like seven thousand dollars a person please oh wow that's, that's worth it it's all the way in new zealand oh i agree with you i agree with you it is worth it but Yep. <laughs> tell tell I, that to someone. We're rooting for you. We're training. yeah. We're we're rooting for you to get that tour. Yeah, and I'm sure all our listeners will. Justice yeah. for <laughs> justice for Victoria's Lord of the Rings tour. <laughs> yeah, Victoria to Edoras twenty. Yeah. <laughs> can you can you imagine if like there's a petition that gets sent to your house and that you can look at sent to your? I know there's. Or at least the last time I looked into it, there's like someone there who just kind of hangs out with a bunch of the replica swords and you can take a picture with them. Oh, I, I actually did. This isn't to like flex. Well, maybe a little. I, I did go to Hobbiton because I went to New Zealand with my sister and it was magical and amazing. And I and we, we went to like the tavern and we ate food and oh, it was so fun. So I went there a couple of years ago and I'm so mad I didn't do the feast at night, but I, w- I know I will return. <laughs> yes. My, my best friend is currently in New Zealand because her partner lives there and they have spent the last like year apart because of the pandemic. And he's like, well, we are living normal lives over here, so it's not as bad. But she they finally got dispensation from the government for her to go down there for a few months. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but nice. she's she got there a couple months ago and did the full two-week quarantine. And then suddenly we were getting Snapchats of bars. And we were like, God, what is going on? It kind of, I mean, the thing is, it's like, you're like, okay, well, it, this isn't your fault that my country sucks. No. No, like. No, no. <laughs> of course, now she's like, I can't wait to get back and get my vaccine. Oh, yes, that's true. That is true. That's all we have. That is all we have. Shoes on the other foot now. Yeah. Well, guess what? My arm really hurt. So there. My arm really did hurt after the second one, it. though. It did. It did. I got um. I got pretty sick after the second one. Oh no. Are you okay now? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It was good. just like a. It passed after. It was a 
chills and like a fever for four mm. hours. Mm. And it was very weird to just be sick and know what was making me sick. And there was not much you could do about it. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, yeah. So we have another question about um, sort of like what your writing, your typical writing day looks like. I know it can be different, but like on yeah. an ideal day, <laughs> what would you <laughs> what would you say like your writing schedule looks like and how do you sort of like juggle everything? Oh, yeah. I call those like my perfect average days. Um, <laughs> and I, they be, have become a little bit more rare now that I'm ramping into launching the book. And we have uh, marketing and publicity um, engagements besides just the actual writing. It's interesting to have another job on top of the job. <laughs> but an ideal perfect working writing day is I usually get up around 738, walk the dog. That is the first thing because... She needs to be walked and fed. And then I'll usually do, now that I have a bad back and I'm getting old, <laughs> I will do either stretches or like a quick yoga, have my breakfast. And by 10 a.m., I'm hopefully in my office. Um, and I have a standing desk for doing meetings and emails and that kind of thing. So I'll get through my emails first. And then hopefully by 11, I'm at the sitting portion of my desk and drafting for a couple of hours, break for lunch, and then get back into it. Sometimes the afternoon is a little bit more admin heavy. Um, that first burst in the morning is when I do my best work. I'm very much a morning work person. And I wrap between usually four and five, unless I'm on a deadline. And I have a hard rule about not working on the weekends or late in the evenings. Um, I find that that helps me avoid burnout or uh, writer's block, actually. You know, Sunday evening rolls around and I'm not I'm not nervous to get back to work. I don't have the Sunday scaries. I'm excited because I haven't written in a couple of days and I want to get back into it. Yeah, that's a really smart tip. I think mm -hmm. that helps too. And it forces you to take a break, which sometimes mm -hmm. we don't do. So <laughs> yep. I feed I, I a lot of people. I got a little timer that I set for 30 minutes so I can get up and do my stretches and get out of the chair because sitting is so bad for us. And my little timer arrived and it doesn't work. No. Oh, no. What? Oh, that's so bad. I got one too. I got the time timer one and it wor it works good. Maybe you should get that one. It's really cute. I will. I will. I think it, it's just like one that, you know, you pull and it colors in the 30 minutes and then it's supposed to mm -hmm. tick down. It doesn't tick down. <laughs> oh, no. That's, I that's so upsetting. Like two, two hours went by today and I was like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> like, is this? Huh? Like... <laughs> Oh, well, I should stand. <laughs> Am I controlling time? Yeah, right, 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 right. Like, you guys, I have stopped time. <laughs> it happened. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> I figured it out. Um, I use this app, which I know like apps can be like, sh you're like eh, it's your phone, but um, it's called Forest App. Oh, I love yeah, Forest. Yeah, yeah. it's just so gratifying because you grow little trees, and you're like, yeah, I made that tree happen with my productivity. <laughs> You're giving me such like I know that it's a different kind of app but that makes me think of Farmville and back when I used to grow my little crops oh god yes. Farmville I forgot yes. about Farmville oh, god that was in uh, college oh Farmville was great at, but um, pe some people in my family figured out that you can like change the time yes. zone on oh, your oh, 1000% I did that mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you and then you get like more things because you had you usually have to wait a few hours or a day and they're like if i change the time zone i'm like that's 
cheating, but I will do it too. <laughs> I'm not fucking waiting for this wheat to grow. I got things to do. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> Um, okay, we um, we do have another listener question. And so this is kind of like just asking you tips and tricks, which we really do like to give a lot of our listeners because a lot of them are like baby writers just starting out. So Anna asks, how has your writing and revision process changed since first starting writing? What tips and tricks have you learned along the way? And are there any parts of the process that you still find particularly challenging? Um, yeah, lots of part of the process are still very challenging. And again, you know, things are always going to be challenging. There's never going to be a quick fix. And I think all of us have that experience where we finish a book, we feel so accomplished. And then you sit down with the blank page to write another book. And you're like, how I do this? <laughs> how does this happen? Uh, I wish I had written a guidebook for myself when I did this the last time. And that happens every single time. <laughs> no. Um, but I think the thing I've learned, um, craft wise is to build out and plan as much as I can beforehand, um, for realm breaker, the series has been very structured and outlined. I know where it ends. I know exactly how many books it's going to be. Um, and I basically try to like get ahead of as much as I can, as fast as I can. Unfortunately, I'm falling behind on that because I wanted to get more of book two done before book or book one came out. Because that was a lesson we all have to learn is once that first book is out, you are running in front of a train trying to lay track and it is catching up at you really quickly. <laughs> um, and then craft-wise also, I think I just became more confident in my tastes and knowing my audience as well and knowing what they connect to. Because at the end of the day, that's my job is to entertain an audience um, and to keep their attention. And I want to service my audience as best I can and to tell the story to them in a way that they are most easily going to metabolize. So I prioritize that a lot more than usual. And then on the revision side, I've been very, very lucky with revisions and that I've never, touch wood, um, run into a situation where my editor has come back with a note or a pay or an edit letter and I have to change huge plot points or move things around or very much alter things in the major plan of the story. Um, it's usually, you know, oh, let's, tweak this so this point lands later let's foreshadow this here we need to deepen this character so revision wise I've never really run into that wall and I'm sure one day she's gonna come back with like page one rewrite please and I I, I fear it I fear it greatly well outside that... oh sorry go ahead oh no worries and I was just gonna say outside craft the best lesson I've learned is to um focus on what I can control because there's a lot in this industry that we cannot control no matter what kind of power people think you have. Mm -hmm. So it's really good to not waste your time and energy and stress on the stuff, things you can't control. You will waste some time and energy and stress on it no matter what, like that's, you can't control that at the end of the day. Um, but try not to get too wrapped up in that as well. You know, you've got to really prioritize where your energy is spent and where your time is spent. Uh, that's such advice. good advice yes. i should talk to that on my forehead because i know it but <laughs> i'm oh, just gosh. always Stop. forgetting don't don't tattoo stuff on your forehead anymore <laughs> talk about it almost all the time you're always like if i need to remember it has to be a forehead tattoo as if there's no other choices um <laughs> but i think it's so it's so funny because um we were we have like little pre-chats for our podcast and we were literally just saying like if someone makes you feel bad and you're not an 
integral part of your life you're allowed to just like not think about them and not you know like you can't control what people are saying but you can control like who you let into your life absolutely Um, and naturally we do remember the bad things more than we remember the good things that's always going to happen you remember the bad reviews and you let the good ones go by because we're not really taught to sort of gas ourselves up and be positive and be proud of ourselves (laughs) yeah of course not what is that even what does that feel like (laughs) pride i don't know her (laughs) um No, but thank you so much. That was actually really, really good advice. I was before I was going to say, like, do you think that the reason why you've been lucky enough not to get like huge, huge, huge structural revision notes is because you do take the time to plot it ahead of time? Maybe. And I as much as I hate outlining, I do have to do it. And I do stick to that skeleton structure very, very closely. And it helps me build the arc of a story at the very least. The character is definitely where I struggle more. Um, I'm all about plot and I'm all about an action sequence and I'm all about a set piece and I will definitely <laughs> write to the twist. Um, but making the characters feel real and alive is something I've struggled with since film school. Um, and I, I'm really, really proud of Realm Breaker because that seems to be the, the piece that people are connecting to most, even more so than the things I think I'm good at is people really like these characters and so do I. I agree. Aww. I think the characters are really good and they grab you from the very beginning. It's, I'm I'm excited for you. I think people are really going to love the series. So um, you actually mentioned uh, TikTok before and one of our listeners really wants to know, how are you liking TikTok and BookTok? <laughs> BookTok is so cool and it, it's you know, over the course of my career and I don't want to sound like I'm dating myself or like I'm an old lady because I still very much <laughs> myself new to publishing I've only been around for five or six years now and when I started it was Twitter and then I think the election really kind of made it clear that Twitter is not a safe place for a lot of us Mm -hmm. it's not um, a place for discussion or nuance and it's very much not where our readers are either Mm. Um, and then it was Instagram and Instagram was much better and I think Instagram is still a great spot for our social media content there's a lot more protection it just does the platform just doesn't allow for the uh danger that twitter does mm-hmm. I find. um and now tiktok i was definitely one of those people who did not download it and then <laughs> i kind of downloaded it because i was curious um and i really liked it and i i definitely am one of those people who scrolls until the app itself is like you've been scrolling for a long time <laughs> But I think that's part of, I, I, there's been this influx, of course, we all, we've all seen it, of authors on TikTok. And some of them are like, oh, they clearly enjoy TikTok and clearly enjoy BookTok and mm-hmm. like it and are picking up on what this is for mm-hmm. um, and are making content that is really fun and informative and also just cool to see. And then you have people who are like, all right, they're very like, how do you do, fellow kids? And they're here to try and sell you a book. And that's fine, too, but it's not going to land in the same organic way. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really have, I'm really enjoying the different communities on BookTok, and the algorithm is freaky accurate. And mm-hmm. it's started, it got me into, like, mid-size TikTok, which is very, I never really knew that mid-size was a thing. There's, you know, 
quote, straight sized women and then plus size women. And then there's an in-between size, which I am, which I did not realize was like a thing and that there's representation for it. And so now I get all these TikToks of girls who have like bodies like mine wearing clothes that look amazing. And I'm like, wow, this is such a nice ego boost and like a self-esteem gas up for something that is not meant to give me better self-esteem. <laughs> I, I actually can super relate to that. Like when, because mm-hmm. I, I am in the same sort of category and like when I started seeing those on TikTok, I was like, but there's like even like a name for this. Like there's, yeah, be- what, what? <laughs> um. And it is very cool. And it is really specific, too. It's it really scary. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know what I think TikTok does? And it does it, like, naturally. It's not, like, trying too hard to be, like, oh, I'm inspiring you. Like, TikTok doesn't care necessarily about inspiring you. But it still does sometimes because it's truly making you, like, realize you're not alone um, with these things. Like, I, I just, I mean, the fact that TikTok wrote and produced a whole musical is like wow that <laughs> happened like that really and and I was I got so I got way I, I got sucked in I got way too into it and then they announced that they were gonna do it and I was like oh god I have to watch the live stream I'm so excited <laughs> oh my god like it just I I don't know like I I got like it's fine it's fine and I do think <laughs> it's fine also, I'm fine <laughs> I'm fine it's fine we're fine we're fine everything's fine but I do think like the whole, okay, I understand that the reason why TikTok has the atmosphere and the coolness it does is because it is an app that does cater to a younger audience in general. But my argument with this of people being like, I'm too old for TikTok or whatever, is that little literal grandmas and grandpas Mm -hmm. can get TikTok famous because of just being like fun and interesting because like however intimidating teens can be and I'll even admit they're super duper intimidating like oh, yeah. most of them just want to like have a good time and find cool people who are funny and fun and genuine and like just have fun you know <laughs> yeah oh I totally agree mm-hmm. I think the key more so than youth is just like being yourself and like not mm-hmm. trying too hard to be a like a product or a brand like victoria you were saying like hello my fellow kids like i think just (laughs) like having fun on there and like doing your own thing like ryan was on tiktok for the longest time and it wasn't until he started talking about anime and like fighting people about anime which he loves to do (laughs) was that he started really gaining followers and it's just like an interest that is like his and he's really passionate about it and i just i think that's I think it's really cool that anybody really could have their own following on there just by being themselves. I It's my favorite because of that. Yeah. Yeah. It really does reward people who are genuine. Mm. Um, I follow this guy that is specifically like Lord of the Rings obscure facts. And he's got like 100,000 followers. And I think, oh, my God, my people. There's a ama- no. There's amazing people. Like there's there's this one guy and his. I think his whole handle is um, angry reactions. Oh, I love him. Yeah, but it's when he like angrily tells you you're amazing. That's mm-hmm. what like like he he just like makes an angry face and he's like you're amazing. You're beautiful. I love it. And it's <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so good. It's all he does, but it makes me feel so good. <laughs> and when I first got on, I was definitely intimidated and definitely like. I don't want to just scroll through people doing TikTok dances. 
And you're very quickly aware, like, that's not what it is. It's mm-hmm. definitely serving me things that are pertinent to me in my life and things that I want to know and like, oh, life hacks that I need and cocktail recipes and DIY stuff for your house or, oh, and fun and fun facts about your dog. And I'm like, how do you know me? <laughs> oh, and then the next TikTok is like, hey, Victoria. And you're like, what? what? Exactly. <laughs> I'm I want- just going to start making TikToks where I always start with, hey, Victoria, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> I end up on your page. (laughs) That's so creepy. (laughs) Um, You brought up Indy, so I just wanted to ask, how is she doing? She's doing very well. I think she's currently in the backyard on the patio, sleeping in the sun. Oh, she's living her living her very best life, getting lots of attention. Oh, good. (laughs) Um, That's really good to hear. All right. So, um, so Victoria, everyone who is on Ride or Die tells us their most embarrassing publishing related story or something they wish they'd known before they started. You can do either or you can do both. It's totally up to you. Uh, yeah. Embarrassing. How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) I... (laughs) I remember once at a convention in Vegas, we were in a casino that they did not change the filters on their uh, air supply, essentially. Uh-oh. And even though we were in the convention hall, the rooms were still so smoky oh, that no. I could not wear my contact lenses. So I had to wear my glasses for the entire my entire signing and event while I was signing next to Tamora Pierce. So I was like, okay, I look like the biggest dork on the face <laughs> of the earth. <laughs> um Oh God! And then my my fre- my freshman year, I like to say my debut year. I'm actually really shy in person, so I I didn't want to bother anyone or talk to anyone. And then I got kind of a reputation for being a bitch because I didn't speak to people. No, uh, mean. Once, I know someone <laughs> once confronted me and at a bar at the end of a convention and was like, "You don't make eye contact, and it's super rude." <gasps> and I was like. I'm no. trying to watch a football game on my phone and it's like two minutes left and we're beating somebody we weren't supposed to beat. Can we do this like like in five minutes? <laughs> and then she made me um, give her 30 seconds of uninterrupted eye contact. Oh my gosh. That's yeah, that was, a, that was a fun one. That was that very like, okay, I need to go back to my hotel room. I'm not built for this. That is really <laughs> intense and intrusive and I'm sorry that that happened. And you no, know, it's, it's it was very much like I think it was a misunderstanding and I was just like overwhelmed. Yeah, but that's not okay <laughs> for yeah. someone to do. And, <laughs> and I think it's also it's really hard because like people assume a lot of stuff about authors from like one or two interactions. Mm-hmm. And right, right, right. And it can always be something else. Like you're, I think people's minds like automatically go to like the negative, but You know, not everybody has an easy time with like big crowds of people or being in front of an audience. Um, Mm -hmm. We didn't become authors because we thought we would be like, you know, like. Yeah, I write stories in the corner in my house because I'm good at talking to people. (laughs) Truly, like we we all have that same kind of shared. Um, inability to connect and that's why we write because that's how we connect and then we're suddenly thrown into a pile of ourselves and we all want to reach out but we don't really know how yeah. yeah it just stinks and also like even if someone isn't an introvert like there's allowed to spend some time getting to know someone before they're immediately like <laughs> yeah. 
get telling them their life stories, you know? Right. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before the podcast started of this idea of false familiarity mm-hmm. that we have. Um, and sometimes you go to conventions and you will have a couple of people who are colleagues who have become your real friends. And you're like, oh, I only see you like once or twice a year. Let's hang out. Let's have dinner. And then there's this um, like stigma if you kind of close off and want to be on your own or be with the one or two people you do know and trust versus putting yourself in a crowd situation after you've been in a crowd situation all day long and kind mm-hmm. of a performance on. People don't kind of, I don't know. I get the excitement and I get wanting to get involved and wanting to meet people, but at the same time, I'm not entitled to your time and your energy and you're not entitled to mine. Yes. Absolutely. And I I think that there's a thing is like, except for the things that are required of us that we signed a contract to do, like, like write our books on time, you know, and turn them in. Or when we agreed to appear at an event, even we, we've agreed to do specific things. We agreed to be on the panel and to do the signing and to show up at the official events, but all the extra stuff, all the unofficial stuff, like, and I get it. Like they, do a lot of extra work to be like let's have let's throw a party for all the authors or let's do this like you're you can come to this optional meet and greet but if you feel like you don't have the spoons to do the optional stuff you should be allowed to opt out yeah so I think that people do need to understand that as well that like authors we are humans too and you know being on for 48 hours is not normal (laughs) (laughs) No. And and we're colleagues. I feel like people forget that, that like there are, mm-hmm. we have work colleague relationships, right. even though there's no like HR to go to when things get weird. <laughs> uh, so I think we should all like try to treat each other with respect and be uh-huh. cordial and not mm-hmm. be assholes either mm-hmm. in person or on social media. You'd think it'd be really easy to do that, but apparently it's not. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Everyone just needs to chill out. I know. And give a little grace. I think, I mean, you guys both had very good takes on things and just the way that there's not much nuance and not much discussion. And the way forward isn't to close doors. It's to try and educate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Firmly totally believe agree. that. Absolutely. I, yeah. Like if, if your whole argument is like, oh, you're, um, you, you should be more inclusive Then, if your method of saying that is to like make someone feel awful about themselves then are you being inclusive in your behavior as yourself you know that's a that's a question that could perhaps be asked yeah anyway and every situation I know I know <laughs> I was just gonna say like every situation is different and should be assessed differently and there shouldn't be like guillotine for things that are different (laughs) levels of 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 problematic oh Mm -hmm. 100 percent. yeah i agree too yeah Yeah, twitter's getting to the point also where like most a lot of authors are leaving making just updates only account because it's not it doesn't feel safe and and like for Mm -hmm. marginalized authors even less so oh yeah Um, i'm sure it's so scary um but victoria it's been lovely talking to you. Yeah, Thank you cute. so much for coming on our show. We wish you the best of luck with Rome Breaker. We know it's going to kick so much ass. Um, can you tell <laughs> everyone where they can follow you on the internet? Yeah, sure. So uh, on that thing called Twitter, you can find <laughs> me at, at Victoria Aveyard. I'm also on Instagram at Victoria Aveyard, TikTok at Victoria Aveyard. And then my website is www.victoriaaveyard.com. 
com, and you might find me in your backyard sometimes. Who knows? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> well, then. I'm going to go look right now. <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll put that all in the show notes, too. And Realm Breaker comes out tomorrow, tomorrow, everybody. So you do still have like a few hours to be considered a pre-order. But otherwise... Uh, we do expect everyone to always buy 20 copies, copies. of every single guest yes. that we that we have on this podcast. So That's please remember that is the rule. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you again, Victoria. Thanks for listening to Write or Die. Be sure to check out Wicked Fox by Kat Cho. And Ghost Squad by Clarabel A. Ortega. And while you're at it, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. See you next time, wordies. And don't forget to spread the word.